The Raspberry Pi really needs no introduction to my audience who, like me, I'm sure put their orders in back in 2012 to get hold of this new super low-cost machine that managed to look both like the future for the education of a new generation of computer enthusiasts, while also invoking memories of a more exciting time of hands-on computing that those of us a little longer in the tooth remember. Today, we have the pleasure of talking with a founder of the Raspberry Pi Foundation to fill us in on the story of the Raspberry Pi and his involvement in it. Please welcome to the cave, Eben Upton. Welcome, sir. Good to be here, virtually. <laughs> so, Eben, tell us about your own background. Is your first exposure to computers a typical British story? Yeah, I think it is. So, I mean, my very first, my very first exposure to a computer was a mini computer, actually, not a microcomputer. So, a mini computer. Uh, my father used to work for the University of Birmingham, and they had this giant kind of. Doctor Strange Love style mini computer with the spinning spinning um, tape, uh, big tape reels and stuff. Um, and we went in there when I was, I think I was probably about three years old and played um, a game called Hunt the Wampus, um, which <laughs> which crops up in a lot of places. Um, and my earliest memory of computing was firing my arrow out of one doorway and the world is um, is connected back on itself, I think, and Hunt the Wampus and firing a, an arrow out of a doorway and then three moves later getting hit in the back by my own arrow. So, um, so yeah, so, so I, so I had this, this kind of exposure to kind of big computers and then most of the rest of my childhood was about a series of, um, of different, um, eight and 16 bit computers. So I had a, um, I briefly had a ZX81 and a BBC micro for a long time, came across the BBC micro at school. Um, and then had a Commodore Amiga for the last two or three years uh, that I was living at home. Okay, so you're of, of an age where you were influenced by the computer literacy project while you were at school. You mentioned the BBC um, Micro there, or not really? Probably the probably the downstream. So I got my BBC Micro in 1988. Oh, so quite late then. Yeah. A seven-year-old piece of hardware. I got a second-hand one. Um, a seven-year-old second-hand piece of hardware. So I guess I'm probably I'm 41. Um, and I'm so I'm probably at the tail end of the generation of people who who had some exposure to the results of the computer literacy project mm -hmm. what prompted you to get a bbc micro then that that late in the day uh it was the machine at school okay right? so so these things were kicking around and the interesting thing about them of course is that they didn't get used for um they weren't really being used to teach com uh, computer programming they were being used to run other software so they were you know, being used to teach french and english mm -hmm. and they'd sit in the corner of the classroom but they had that kind of turn them on goes beep gives you a basic prompt um kind of very very um they kind of beguiled you into programming, I think, those machines. Mm. Uh, so I got got started in kind of uh, break time and after school, um, saved up, uh, kind of scraped together the pennies uh, and bought a very, really rather dilapidated secondhand uh, BBC <laughs> micro. You had to hit it on the top in order to make it over the power supply to get it to turn on. There was something where if you hit, once it was turned on, it was fine, but to get it to turn on, you had to hit it. And then within about a second, so I have still to this day, I have no idea what that was. But, yeah. <laughs> so before the first Raspberry Pi came out, you would have then been established in a career. So what was your line of work? And then how did that intersect with the Raspberry Pi project? Well, I was a I was a chip designer, I guess. Um, so I was a, a, an embedded software engineer, um, I, I spent a bit of time in the games industry. So when I was a, when I was a student, I started a games company, did two or three, started and ran and sold two or three games companies. Um, and then I, uh, so I was a, I'm very much a software engineer. I'm not a hardware guy. Um, and, uh, but I ended up working for a company called Broadcom, um, makes, um, uh, makes uh, silicon, including the silicon that's in the Raspberry Pi. Um, and that kind of put me in a place where I'd been teaching at the university in Cambridge. So I kind of knew that we were struggling to find young people. Um, and, um, I had access to this kind of 
awesome technology um, in the, the, the chips we were developing in Cambridge um, that were quite a good fit for trying to build a, build a platform that kids could play around on. Mm-hmm. So you saw firsthand then you were recognizing a decline in, in interest in computer science. Yeah, it was incredible, right? Um, you couldn't, uh, I mean, you couldn't make it up. Um, you know, Cambridge, you, you know, we're, we're Turing's university, uh, we're the university that built the first, uh, we built a machine called EdgeSack back in the late 1940s, which was the first, um, certainly the first real general purpose computer in the uh, non-toy general purpose computer uh, in the UK, one of the very first in the world. So you'd think if you're going to go and study computing, Cambridge would be the place you'd do it. And yet every year from sort of 2000 onwards, every year 10, 20% fewer year on year on year. And it was kind of just grinding decline in the number of people who were applying to study computer science at Cambridge. And so if that was happening to us here, it was certainly happening to the rest of the UK higher education system. Um, and anything that happens, the thing is anything that happens to the higher education system happens to the job market three years later. And so, you know, we're, we're also seeing difficulty recruiting uh, uh, recruiting engineers. Yeah, yeah. So any right. of the firms that I'd, uh, that I'd run or work for. Yeah, so a problem was certainly starting to present itself. It wasn't all about the technology for you, though. I know you co-authored the Oxford Rhyming Dictionary with your father in 2004. <laughs> are, you, are you a songwriter or a poet on the side? No, I'm. I'm. So I'm. I'm. I'm sort of. Uh, I'm tone deaf. Uh, and, <laughs> uh, I, I, certainly, uh, it was a fun one to do. Actually, that. I mean, it was what was really what's really interesting about doing it was that it was a. Um, it's one of those things where, so my father's an English professor, um, and it's one of those things, and that kind of goes all the way back as far as that Wampus, the kind of Wampus example, actually, is that humanities have, well, people think that um, computing is only relevant or useful or helpful in uh, kind of the, on the engineering and physical sciences side. Actually, the, humani- the humanities can really benefit from it enormously. So uh, the, the rhyming dictionary, the first draft of that rhyming dictionary was written by a computer program. Um, so effectively, a uh, rhyming dictionary... Yeah. It's like a thesaurus, right? You look um, you look a word up in an index, and then it gives you a block of words all of which rhyme with each other. Um, and that process of figuring out not the final product but a rough cut is something that historically you would have done over the course of a year or two with file cards, shuffling file cards around, going, oh, that one rhymes with that one. I'll put that in that pile. Um, and, yeah, we were able to get a, a rough cut of that, uh, of the rhyming dictionary in, I think it was a Christmas Eve, in, in an afternoon on Christmas Eve. Uh, I did wonder when I saw there's about 75,000 words in there. I thought, has he used computers here to do this? Yeah. <laughs> I had the better half. I had the better half of the job in that I wrote the program. I spent the, an afternoon writing the program that generated the rough cut. And my father then spent six months to a year taking the rough cut and turning it into a book. Oh, books. he did the hard graft. Yeah. <laughs> So onto the Raspberry Pi itself then. The Raspberry Pi Foundation was set up in 2009. So that's three years before the first Pi was released to the general public. What was the original objective then? Before any designs for hardware had been committed to the drawing boards or anything like that, what did the team want to achieve? Do something about the decline in interest in computing among young people. Uh, Decline in interest in understanding, I mean, obviously vast interest in computing and, you know, getting on the web and stuff among young people, but decline in interest in finding out how computers work. Uh, and there was always an idea that this was going to involve hardware. So even from the very earliest days of the Raspberry Pi Foundation, it was an organization which was created to build hardware. Mm-hmm. And you, you don't, you've already identified, as you explained, the waning interest in computer science. But what do you think is the reason behind that? Well, well, so it's still a hypothesis, right? I mean, we've been doing this for, so the foundation was incorporated at the tail end of uh, 2008. So we've been doing this for nearly 12 years. Um, and it's still a hypothesis, right, that um, we, so when I came up to Cambridge in 1996, 
um, most of the people I was surrounded with had had some hobbyist experience in computing. We've never really taught until very recently. Um, we've never really taught computing in schools, um, certainly not very well. Um, and so people applying, it doesn't take a lot of imagination as a sixth former to, um, to, to enjoy physics and think I'm going to go read physics at university. That's not a, that's not a, a complicated decision. Um, thinking, oh, I have never studied computer science at school, uh, but I'm going to take, take three years of my life and risk that on studying this subject that I've never encountered. That's actually a big ask. And so what, if you look back at where we were getting our students from in the 1990s, we weren't getting them from the formal education system at all. Uh, we were getting it from home hobbyist computing. And so the kind of the Raspberry Pi hypothesis, the diagnosis that we came to was um, as these, um, as, eight, as programmable computers went away, and the, really the PC and the Mac are the kind of the tail end of what was, I mean, behind you in your man cave, you have you have an enormous collection of pieces of programmable hardware, right? Um, and they're only they're only programmable hardware because those were the architectural choices that made sense at the time. But as those machines were replaced by progressively less programmable hardware, um, this supply of young people that we'd never really thought about kind of started to dry up. And so, really, the, the hypothesis of the Raspberry Pi is: um, well, if our students went away because the computers went away, if we bring the computers back maybe the students will come back. And it's that simple. I mean, it's this kind of cargo cult almost idea of, uh, of, of trying to recreate some of the uh, the positive aspects of the 1980s computer revolution. Mm -hmm. And and no doubt uh, a struggle uh, against things, as you explained, like the iPad, like the tablets that just give you no exposure uh, to that back end, yeah. to that programming. Yeah, we say, you know, nobody ever bought a Nintendo and then was tricked into being a computer programmer in the same way that very large numbers, particularly with the Spectrum, very, mm -hmm. very of people I know in, in the games industry got into it through buying a Spectrum to play uh, to play games on, um, and then uh, and then realizing that the first thing you can do you you know the first thing you have to do with an eight bit microcomputer the first thing you have to do if you want to do something other than program is choose not to program. It's got that choice architecture is that way round. It gives you a basic prompt at the start of the day. Um, and we were trying to get something which was as close. And early prototypes of the Raspberry Pi are much more like that um, than the Raspberry Pi. There's a prototype from uh, uh, now sadly lost from 2008, 2009, which really does boot into Python. So it's okay. actually put a Python onto a closed source DSP and you turn it on and it waits a couple of seconds and then you get a Python REPL. Um, and obviously we've moved away from that a little bit, but we try to retain the spirit of it, I guess, with the tools that we bundle on the platform. Mm -hmm. And the team that came together to work on this um, included people such as David Braben, Braben mm. or Braben? I'm never quite sure how to Braben. Braben. David Braben, uh, co-creator. If it isn't Braben, then I then I've just spent a very embarrassing, <laughs> embarrassing twelve years. <laughs> so included David Braben, co-creator of Elite. Uh, who else was in the team? What kind of expertise were being channeled into this problem that you'd identified? Because so far so I've seen that you've got two games makers on the team. <laughs> yeah, right. Absolutely. And I mean, I think that reflects the, the way that um, the computer industry in the UK kind of feels quite gamesy. You know, mm. this, the, creative, the creative side of the computing industry in the UK is disproportionately large, I think, compared to the rest of it. Um, so we had a couple of guys from the computer laboratory in Cambridge. Um, and then we have a chap called Pete Lomas, um, who uh, runs a, um, a company called Morcott up in, up in Cheshire. They're an electronic design consultancy, and he's the guy who actually did the board-level hardware design right. for um, the first-generation Raspberry Pi for the Raspberry Pi 1. Mm -hmm. So we had sort of people on the chip side, people on the software side, um, and then somebody, and you know, somebody, we're very, very lucky. I mean, Pete was a, uh, 
Pete was really a chance encounter. So Alan Mycroft, who's one of our, uh, is a professor at the computer laboratory and one of our co-founders, uh, bumped into him at an event at Imperial College and told him what we were trying to do. And the next week he came up and saw us in Cambridge. And the week after that, he was one of our founding trustees. So uh, it's one of those real bits of serendipity that, you know, we knew a lot about writing software. We knew a lot about designing. Well, you know, we had access to fantastic uh, silicon. Um, but we knew nothing about PCBs. Mm. And we were lucky to bump into Pete. Um, he nearly got me shot once. Uh, <laughs> Go on. <laughs> was, uh, uh, when we were doing Raspberry Pi, so 2011, um, uh, it was very, it's very hard to make a $25 computer. Um, uh, and and you, one thing you want to do is you want to reduce the bill of materials. You want to make sure that you squeeze, you know, you have the big pieces of silicon, but it's really not the big pieces of silicon, the memory and the processor and the network chip that kill you. It's all the little capacitors and connectors on the board. Certainly when you're at low volume, like we were. 2011. Um, and so I'm, we did a lot of work optimizing the bill of materials, the bomb. And I was sat in the departure lounge at Heathrow Airport. Um, and I was on the phone to Pete and I was on my way to America. And I said something to him like, uh, yeah, I need, uh, have you got the bomb for me? Because I'm going to be on a plane for 10 hours. I can do a lot of work on the bomb in 10 hours, you know. And you gradually become aware of this circle of silence expanding out around you. And you, you hope the circle of silence doesn't intersect with one of the gentlemen with the flat jackets and the MP5. You know? um, but yeah, no, he's a lovely, apart from that, he's a lovely bloke. Excellent. I've got a few um, viewers' questions, which I'll sprinkle in. Most of them are at the end, but I'll sprinkle a few of them in. The first one is from Arne Schmidt, and he asks, did the one laptop per child project influence the Pi in any way? Did you learn any lessons from its shortcomings? Yeah. Um, I I mean, obviously, you know, if you look back at the two, the two things that really influenced us, I guess, were um, Arduino. Um, and um, Arduino in the sort of sense of inspiring us that you could create, that there really actually was interest. There was always that worry, you know, we talk about a hypothesis, there's always that worry that actually the, the answer is, the null hypothesis is kids don't care uh, anymore. Uh, and um, Arduino's success, which was kind of a few years before us, um, gave us some confidence that that, that, that wasn't true. Um, and then one laptop per child was interesting because it had a very different um it was very focused on winning large, largely developing world government contracts. It was a complicated piece of equipment. Um, it was very focused on going out and doing kind of sales heavy lifting to go persuade, I don't know, I think some of South, quite a lot of South American countries, I'm sort of thinking Uruguay maybe, uh, had, had quite large deployments. Mm. Um, and it was about going and doing that, much less about the community-led stuff. And so that probably motivated us. There are a number of things that motivated us to go for a kind of a community-led way of doing this project. And probably the difficulty is that if you don't have a community behind you, you have to do everything yourself. You're kind of pushing water uphill constantly. Everything has to come from you. It never comes from outside. Um, and I think we were keen to avoid that particular aspect of our LPC. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned the bomb and the design process a minute ago. Um, was the Pi really designed from the ground up to be a low-cost device, or did you start more with your ideal machine and then try to cost-reduce it? What was the what was the approach? Definitely the former. So this okay. is a um, you know, people um, because I'm a BBC. You know, there are two sorts of people in the world, right? There are BBC Micro um, Mega people, and there are Spectrum ST people. Mostly, uh, it's a bit of a caricature, but it, it does it does hold. Um, and um, while I kind of look at Raspberry Pi in from a BBC Micro point of view, it's actually a Spectrum, right? Um, it's very much a 
uh, an engineered cost. At least it's very much an engineered cost product. Now, it doesn't mean that it's a bad product, but what it does mean is that your design decisions are constrained by how much money you have. They're not. It's not that your price is constrained by the things that you decide decide to put into the platform. And that's always been the case. So I think when you look at every Raspberry Pi, um, so so one, one plus two, three, three plus four, they're all the answer to the question: What can I do for thirty five dollars this year? Mm -hmm. um, and that will always be the, I guess that will always be the case for Raspberry Pi. And it makes, it actually makes for a fantastic engineering environment um, because there's no temptation. You know, it's very easy. You know, one of the challenges with engineering is is temptation, um, and there's never really been that in this project. Which yeah. is and one of the decisions was to sell the Pi as an exposed board with no case. Was this purely a cost-based decision, or were there other ideas behind showing people, you know, an exposed PCB? This is the raw hardware. Originally, it was a cost-based decision. It was yeah. a, well, it was actually a um, a, uh, a fixed cost-based decision, not a variable cost-based decision. So, making a little pla plastic injection molded box for something the size of the Pi costs you a dollar, maybe. Um, so it wasn't going to be prohibitive. The unit cost impact wasn't going to be prohibitive. What kills you is the design expense and the injection mold. And remember, we thought we were going to do a thousand, ten thousand in our wildest dreams, ten thousand Raspberry Pis. So you've got to amortise um, a fifty thousand pound injection mold across a thousand units, fifty pounds a unit. Um, so that was the original thought. But then, as we started to take them and put them in schools and put them in front of people, what we realised was that the, the exposed nature of the product um, is was a big motivator. For people, you you have kids who had never seen what's inside their phone. You know, you only when you when you see a PCB in in the real world. Um, and so, you, you we took one into into a school in Cambridge a little you know, two or three weeks before we launched, um, and they had to be pretty much dragged away at the end. Of, we did a, a little class. Um, we did some filming for the BBC. And we did a little class, and these kids had to be dragged away from the machine at the end. <laughs> so interesting and beguiling. And so when you see uh, when we do then do our own case, so two two or three years later we start doing our own plastic cases. A lot of other people have done nice cases for the pie, but the cases that we've designed have always had some element of encouraging it to be very very easy to open. So the the Pi the Pi two Pi three case had a kind of top and sides that you could clip off so you could run it in this kind of um, roll cage kind of uh, the remaining residual bit of the case mm -hmm. and then Pi four case which is a bit more traditional still has kind of one touch just squeeze the sides of it and the top pops off yeah uh, and really really want people to not see these things as functional magic you know because it's, it's it's always a tension between yeah. making things attractive uh, and easy to use and making things, um, not making things too opaque. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you've identified the problem, you've come up with the hardware, but now you need to get this thing to market. I remember reading at the time, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the team wanted this to be manufactured as much as possible in Britain. Was the, the Britishness of the pie important to the team? Um, we really wanted to manufacture it in Britain and we weren't able to. So... Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the goal was, you know, it had always seemed like, you know, we built up, we built a lot of computers in the UK. Um, and it's always seemed like um, it would be a natural place to build it. There is a long heritage of general electronics manufacturing, particularly in South Wales, interestingly, which is where we finally ended up. Um, but I did this kind of really sad, fruitless tour in the, the tail end of 2011 between the announcement in May of 2011 and launch in February of 2012. And it is really fruitless tour of contract manufacturers in the UK trying to get anyone to take us seriously. Um, and um, I would either get no quote or I'd get a quote which was clearly designed to make me go away. Yeah, um, yeah. And we ended up building in China. 
So we found a, a company um, in uh, a friend of mine in, in Taipei um, found me a, a, a company in Shenzhen um, who were prepared to build with a minimum order quantity of a thousand units uh, at a decent cost, at a cost that would let us uh, sell the things economically. Um, and it was great. And I remember taking. Um, it can be hard to get chips from the West into China. So what often happens is you'll transship through Hong Kong um, and then it'll get taken over the land border. Um, and the company we're dealing with was so small that the transshipment address was an apartment. Uh, and I sent $50,000, got DHL, sent $50,000 of chips to an apartment in Hong Kong. And then I sent $50,000 to a wired $50,000 to a bank account. And then I waited. Um, and, um, and I waited and I waited and I waited. They said three weeks and I waited three weeks, four weeks, five weeks, six weeks. Um, and then 10 prototypes came back and they didn't work. Um, <laughs> and, um, we felt pretty, pretty, pretty grim. Um, but then, um, we, it was, it turned out to be a trivial problem. Um, we, uh, we, we, we fixed that problem. Then 2000, our 2000 units, we don't 2000 units, our 2000 units turned up. Um, and, um, it was wonderful. You know, and this, this, these, uh, these people who we'd never met um, uh, were totally honest and were completely, you know, decent, honest people. They may maybe have been a little bit uh, aggressive about their schedule estimates to us, um, but they were completely honest. They did one and a half million units. That manufacturer did one and a half million units. So as many as they sold BBC in Microsoft, um, that manufacturer did one and a half million units on the back of, of treating us decently when we asked to buy 2,000, which yeah. is kind of, kind of a nice story. And does that remain the case today? Is that where manufacturing happens today? No, so we, so we, yeah, we had this this ambition to build in the to build in the UK. Um, on launch day, actually, we got a, an email. I found it about a week later because I was kind of had a slightly busy launch week. But on launch day, we had an email from, um, as it turned out, Sony. It wasn't clear who it was at the time, uh, but as it turned out, Sony in South Wales saying we think we can build your product for you at a competitive price with China. Uh, and then there was then a kind of a very frantic six months. Uh, well, there were there were sort of I guess two frantic things going on. One was We'd taken 100,000 orders for Raspberry Pis, and we didn't have 100,000 Raspberry Pis. So we took 100,000 orders on launch day. So there was a frantic effort in China to build 100,000 Raspberry Pis. And I remember Farnell, one of our licensees, sending out T-shirts. You still see them at Pi events sometimes. These are, we call them apology T-shirts. But they sent everyone who was in a queue a T-shirt, like a, a polo shirt, to sit with their logo on saying, sorry, you haven't got your Raspberry Pi yet. Um, and so there was a frantic effort in trying to do that. And in parallel, there was a frantic effort in the UK to bring up Sony as a manufacturer. And so Pete, uh, Pete Lomas, I mentioned, and Mike Buffum, who at the time was with, um, at the time was with uh, Farnell, actually now works for us at Raspberry Pi, um, uh, sort of did this exercise where you take, uh, I guess, um, the interesting thing about Farnell as a licensee right, is that they are an electronic component distribution company, so they can go and get components. And Sony can go and get components. And what happened in the end was they sort of put the two bombs together and then went through on a line item by line item basis and made a blended bomb, which had the lower of the cost. And actually, that was enough. That process was enough to get the um, the UK. The UK um, factory gate price was a little bit higher than the Chinese factory gate price. But of course, your factory gate is in your primary market rather than requiring a bunch of shipment. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. Um, so we were six months in, roughly six months in, we started building in the UK. And really over time, the story has been about declining share of China in our build process and increasing share, share of the UK. So of about 32 million Raspberry Pis we've sold now, 22, 23 million are UK made. Um, the balance are, are made in, are mostly in China and a few in Japan. 
Excellent. Well, I'm pleased to say I was a part of that problem. I had my order in with Farnell on day one. Um, you can't... Did you get the T-shirt? I didn't get the T-shirt. I got the pie. Oh. No problems. No problems. Well, yeah, probably the pie is the pie is better than the T-shirt. I think you needed to have ordered in the afternoon of the 29th of February rather than the morning. I think you ordered in the morning. You got it before they sent the T-shirt right, out. Right. The T-shirt's just rafting. I was really hoping you'd say you, you'd found the Dragon Data Factory mothballed in South Wales and you fired it up again. <laughs> <laughs> but we went to Sony. Um, so how about choosing the operating system for the Pi then? Was it a difficult task to come up with something that would satisfy what is a very broad range of users? Um, yes, because, of course, well, we had a... Um, uh, we had this kind of diver diversion that I mentioned earlier, where originally for operating system we had C Python as our operating system mm. for the devices. Um, once we'd settled on Linux, we there was a little bit of a distribution kind of. There's an interesting kind of um, shopping for distributions. So we, I think, the first thing we demoed was running Ubuntu, um, but it was clear. So we, so the original Raspberry Pi has an ARM 11 core in, which is a um, it's an ARMv6 architecture core, and a lot of vendors have decided they weren't going to do ARMv6. They're going to do ARMv7, the modern kind of the modern 32-bit ARM architecture. Um, so Ubuntu cut support for ARMv cut support for ARMv6. So we couldn't do Ubuntu. Um, when we launched, we were shipping with Debian, um, and um, we expected to transition to Fedora, um, and then we didn't do that uh, in the end. And then this project came along called Raspbian. Uh, now, the interesting thing about the Debian we were using was it didn't have uh, almost every other um, almost every other ARM 11 doesn't have a, a very few ARM 11s have um, floating point coprocessors enabled. And we did have a floating point coprocessor. Uh, what I meant was that the stock Debian wasn't exploiting all of the features in our chip. Um, and what happened uh, was a couple of people, Mike Thompson and Peter Green, um, got a project together to basically take the Real Debian, the the uh, the ARM v7 Debian, and rebuild it, cutting out the v7 features until they have something which would work on v6. Um, and so that's what that's what Raspbian is. So Raspbian is um, there's an official ARM5 um, ARM v5 uh, Debian, and there's an official ARM v7 Debian, and Raspbian is this unofficial ARM v6 Debian, which is still what we ship today. Um, yeah. So even on our, our Raspberry Pi 4 or Raspberry Pi 3, which are all 64-bit devices uh, with ARM v8 support, we actually, by default, our operating system is an ARM v6 OS. Uh, and that's about providing backwards compatibility. So if you take, go to our website today and flash an image, um, then you'll be able to boot that on, on, on your original Raspberry Pi if you, if you still have it. Um, it. It won't work fantastically because you'll only probably have a quarter of a gig of RAM yeah. uh, or boot. Um, in fact, it'll, it'll even run, I believe it will even run on the alpha boards, which were the 2011, the, the block of 50 um, things which first looked like a Raspberry Pi um, back in 2011. We have one or two of those out in the community, and there are people who complain at us <laughs> if we do a release that doesn't run on alpha boards. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier that you are a software guy more than a hardware guy, and you've, you've co-authored papers on um, HCI, human-computer interaction. So this is really your area. So are you happy then that you've got the balance right with Raspbian with how it's presented to the user? Yeah, I think so. And of course, a lot of this is a chap called Simon Long, um, who joined us in um, 2014. Um, uh, and he was, he's, he's um, so the kind of you can see a kind of a step change in the UI in early 2015 after he'd been working on it for about six months. So we originally had a very much an out-of-the-box LXD experience, and really the last half decade, wow, half decade now, 
Um, and what Simon's been doing is progressively tuning that environment to be more and more and more user-friendly and just sanding the edges off. Because you know, we don't believe that a Raspberry Pi can be a worthwhile education platform without being um, aggressively difficult to use. You know, there isn't, there shouldn't be a conflict between ease of use. There has been, I think, on some platforms in the past, but there shouldn't be a conflict between ease of use um, and um, accessibility for programming. Mm-hmm. So that's Simon's thing. I'm super. I'm super happy to. Uh, Simon's a very old friend, and I'm super happy that we were able to persuade him to come and spend half a decade of his life filing the corners <laughs> off uh, the uh, Raspberry Pi user experience. Excellent. So um, we come to launch day. Uh, you've talked about it a little bit there that T-shirts were sent out and whatnot. But just share with us your memories of the day itself when the Raspberry Pi went on sale, because you must have been. I, I, well, did you sleep the night before? Were you ready for um, it? <laughs> I didn't sleep because I was signing the contracts. Okay. So the licensing contracts were not signed until very, very close to zero hour. Um, I think we actually had one that was signed after midnight. Um, wow. uh, so, so I was doing that. Um, we got up. Um, we launched it in Germany. So, um, electro. Uh, to get this right, embedded world. So, embedded, so electronica is the one that's in that's in in November. The embedded world was running in. Uh, in Germany. And so the reason we ended up with this 29th of February launch date, which is completely insane, and it's purely an artifact of the fact that was when Embedded World was. And so Pete was out of the Embedded World. He had a, um, there was a little bit of a, um, uh, there was one, unit. we had so few units um, to go around um, that um, there was a, a unit, he believed that I was, he was out there with Farnell, um, and he believed that they had the unit, and they believed he had the unit. <laughs> uh, what had actually happened was that a one of the Farnell technical team had taken it to a computer club in uh in leeds uh the night before <laughs> um so it had to be bike couriered um to an airport to get on a plane either la- i think a last plane out and ended up getting bike couriered to to get on a plane to germany and so it did eventually make it there he was out in germany i was in cambridge um and um you know we pressed the button we told everyone i think we told everyone the day before actually that they should get up early um and people got up early and crashed our partners' websites, um, and it was just this day. It was a frantic, uh, frantic day of doing press, and um, uh, you know, taking phone calls from the partners, explaining that their websites were falling over. Um, and um, we got to the end of the day, and then polled the partners and the estimate. And it was very much an estimate because you know the systems. Um, partway through the day, people had built um, ad hoc systems for undertaking to unload people. So the um, the front page of, I think at least one part of the site, the front page had ended up with a pop-up on that said, if you're looking for Raspberry Pi, click this button. Right. Um, and then it would take you somewhere else. Um, and then uh, the other button would take you to their traditional their traditional flow. And so it was all a bit approximate, but it was the, you got, got the evening and it was pretty clear that we, we'd sold virtually 100,000 units. Wow. Uh, yeah. And we went to a pub. We got the back room of the pub, of the pub behind St. John's um, in uh, in Cambridge, and a bunch of us just went there and just drank beer. Um, of course, you did. It's the only only thing you could possibly do after a day I, like that. Yeah, it's British. You know, we got through the day on we got through the day on tea, and then we we got through the evening on beer. <laughs> well, it was already well uh, for getting the, into the hands of enthusiasts like me. I was already excited about computing, though I didn't need converting. Did you get as many pies into the education system in these early days as you hoped? Um. Well, we probably did in the sense that our ambitions are very low. So, okay. you know, if you think our ambitions were a thousand units, probably out of a hundred thousand units, yeah, a thousand of them did go to schools or to kids. Um, I think as a proportion of our sales early on, it was disappointing that we were uh, mostly selling to enthusiasts. So at the time, it was it felt like you know maybe we were missing our mark, and we'd 
we build a product for ourselves rather than building a product for our target audience. Um, but I think what we didn't realize was that the enthusiasts were going to be the people who were going to make it work in education. So the enthusiasts of teachers, the enthusiasts of parents, the enthusiasts of volunteers at code clubs and after school and after school clubs. Um, you know, the enthusiasts maybe sometimes are. Um, I mean, if I look back to my childhood, the people who got me, who kept me involved in computing, were the kind of the adults who were there to answer tricky questions for you or just to look at what you've done and go, wow, that's pretty cool. Um, and so what I think we saw was that the, the people who were buying Raspberry Pi in 2012 um, were the people who were going to make Raspberry Pi work in education in 2014. Uh, and so over time, we saw volume grow, but we saw educational volume grow faster, so grow more rapidly as mm -hmm. a proportion of that, of, of, that, of that growth. So by the time you get to 2014, you're actually seeing, even before Raspberry Pi, you know, I mean, Raspberry Pi, the foundation, um, has done a lot of work now in um, uh, in you know, encouraging formal education, in supporting informal education. But even before the, the foundation was doing that stuff effectively, we were seeing people find ways to use Raspberry Pi in mm -hmm. those of their own free will under their own power. Yeah, similarities with the the old computer literacy project because it was all well and good taking up the subsidised cost of a BBC Micro to get one cheap, but it took the teachers, the enthusiastic teachers, to really run with it um and and drive that project so it sounds like a similar thing happened with the with the enthusiasts taking it into schools and of course what was what was really striking for us was how little we knew about the computer literacy project if you if you consume the computer literacy project through the prism of a secondhand bbc micro eight years later um it's very easy to imagine you know what it's about that it's about children and of course it isn't about children it isn't it isn't entirely about children a lot of it is about um it is about um reskilling people in sunset industries to you know it's about adult education so um it wasn't really until there's a lady called tilly blythe at the science museum who's actually one of our trustees now and she wrote a large study about the legacy of the literacy project and it was really only when i read that i was like wow i was almost like a side effect my experience of computing was a side effect of this it wasn't actually the thing that people were shooting for yeah yeah i mean the, the school side of it um helped with the sales the stability to get through that sort of 1984 crash of microcomputers mm -hmm. that, that helped it through so it, education helped in that part but yeah you're right it was really about uh, the end of the 1970s and the automation of traditional jobs and reskilling, yeah, absolutely. Um, now, around every successful product grows a market to cater for its user base, and the Pi was no different. We had everything from cases to hats to sit on the GPIO headers and extend its functionalities. What does your own personal Pi setup look like, even? Uh, so I have, I, so I have, I have several. So I have one which is in a um, in a Flirk case. So I have one which is in the the aluminium. Uh, it's a very popular aluminium case of the Raspberry Pi, so that's that's one way you can run the thing just flat out all the time, and the thing won't even get won't even get warm. So it's a big, big stick of aluminium on it. I have a bunch of them actually, which are hanging off my home router, so I have a bad habit um, <laughs> where other people would spin up um, a VMs. Um, I tend to just get another Pi out of the box <laughs> every Ethernet port on the back of your... Uh, so, so I have a bunch of those, and they're kind of like carefully spaced apart so they don't short each other out, but they kind of are basically just vertically down. Hanging by the patch cable. <laughs> um, that works. Um, so, so yeah, so I, have, so I have those two. I have various ones built into various projects as well. But, um, you know, I always try and have um, following... So Gordon Hollingworth, who's our director of software engineering, um, he has always had a... Um, 
Uh, I only had ones which were in projects, but he's always had one ever since he joined us. He's always had the current latest generation one on his kitchen counter as a PC, um, as his way of finding out how close it is to being a PC. Um, and so I kind of learned from that, and I was kind of inspired by that to have one set up always as a, always as a computer, even though I was mostly using them headless. Um, and the interesting thing there, of course, is his, you know, Gordon's experience is that Pi 4 is the one where he no longer takes his laptop home. Oh, cool. Okay. Because that's the one. That's that kind of that was the point where we knew there was something a bit different uh, about Raspberry Pi four when um, Gordon's laptop. You started to see Gordon's laptop still docked on his desk uh, at the end of the day after he'd gone home. Yeah, yeah. Um, now the the Pi, you must have seen it being put to work in many many different ways over the years. Are there any applications of the Pi that have really stood out for you that you've come across? I see a cheeky smile there. You've, you know, yeah. something's come to mind. <laughs> I, well, I still like the high altitude ballooning ones. I really do. I mean, it's an early use of the Pi, but the high altitude ballooning ones are really great because they're uh, partly I like it. I mean, it's just it generates these beautiful pictures, um, and uh, and also because it's kind of. Um, it's emblematic of that thing I was talking about with with uh, enthusiasts, work done by enthusiasts, turning into educational stuff. So Dave Aikman, who's been doing this forever, um, is doing it. And it starts off as being the preserve of um, you know middle-aged, um, extremely skilled electrical and software engineers. And then they write about it. And maybe they write up a bit of what they've done. And then it gets to a point where maybe an adventurous secondary school might do it. And then if enough adventurous secondary schools have done it, then most secondary schools can do it in the occasional adventurous primary school. And then we found ourselves, I think 2015, found ourselves running a thing called Sky Academy, um, which was a specific teacher training activity. So we have a teacher training program called Pi Academy. And we ran this thing called one session of this thing called Sky Academy, which was specifically teaching teachers to go and uh, fly balloons. And it's great because it means kids can have, um, uh, schools can have a space program. Costs yeah. two hundred pounds, you know, a tank of helium and a and a sort of fifty quid weather balloon, and you can you know, the pictures you take are indistinguishable from the pictures you would take from actual space, and that's kind of cool. Uh, it's another one where there was always this sort of feeling. I mean, the two things I loved when I was a kid, I loved computers, and I, well, I loved Lego, and I loved computers, and I loved space, and I loved space. And it turns out that uh, you know, the question was, are any of those things still cool? And yes, it turns out they're all still encouraging. Um. On that topic of doing cool things with the pies, we're going to go the other way now because viewer Jack P asks, how do you feel about the pie being used for something as simple as a nightlight? Is that as good an application of it as any? Yes, <laughs> if it solves a problem, right? Um, I mean, there's this thing with kids where as, where um, you there's a wonderful um, thing kids do with the pie where you, can, you connect an LED to a pair to a GPIO and then you connect a switch to another GPIO, and then you flick the switch, and you have a piece of software which reads the state of the switch and drives the GPIO, drives the, the LED GPIO. Um, and you flick the switch, and the, and the LED turns on. And, but the the joy in children's faces when they do that, and you're like, you know you could do that without the pie, right? <laughs> I mean, the nice thing about it is, of course, you can then say, oh, well, let's make it a toggle switch, or let's, you know, you, you, can, you can build on it once you've got some software in the loop. But, you know, that people are instinctively really chuffed actually, when they when they build anything that has software in the middle of it. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think the nightlight is great, actually. And um, there's somebody did um, – Pimeroni, the guys up in Sheffield, do a kit, which is basically a, a programmable you know, sort of nightlight, indicator light. And someone's done a, um, a presence indicator light for people who are working from home. 
So now we're all working from home. Um, uh, they've built a hacked up a system of, of, of presence lights um, out of these things. So, you know, you can do once you can turn a light bulb on, you can do a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah. I've got a friend who's um, set it up to read the local. He lives in Cornwall. So he goes out to the Internet, checks the tide times and then does a load of lights uh, behind his um, headboard on his bed and brings the tide up and down with the, the yellow and the blue lights. Yeah, very nice. Nice. That's nice. Yeah. I like that. Now, um, many applications have, have sprung out of the low-cost computing platform. So we, uh, on the Pi, you see things like Plex, the video player. If you're into retro gaming, you've got the retro Pi distribution, loads and loads of things like that. Has the software that you've seen on the Pi ever influenced the decision-making in the hardware design for the next iteration of the Pi? Um, only in the sense that people always wanted to do more, right? That it's, it's, people always want just more MIPS. Right. <laughs> and so there's always been that that question of like you know for a lot of applications a lot of pie applications we you know, we sell an enormous number of raspberry pi zeros into um uh um industrial type applications where um people really don't need people just need to be able to boot linux you know that's not a vastly powerful device but people need to be able to boot linux run a bit of python and interact with the world um and so there's a whole strand on the probably about half of volume is industrial and in that world hardly anyone needs vastly more performance uh, but what you see you know the, the the guys particularly the retro gaming guys are a relentless you know the two things that are relentless sources of consumption of nips are web browsing um because of course web pages aren't getting easy to render they're not having any less javascript on um and uh, and retro game and so there's always that thing whenever we release a new raspberry pi what um uh platform have we brought into is there a new retro gaming platform that we've brought in scope? Uh, the big question, so the big question with Raspberry Pi 4 is, does it bring Dolphin in scope? Right, does it bring GameCube? Um, uh, you've got one down there. Uh, does it bring... Uh, yeah, <laughs> there does it, is a GameCube. <laughs> uh, yeah, does it bring that in scope? And it's kind of, uh, it's kind of a little teetering on the edge there. Um, so, so, but that would be great if we've, if we've, if we've crossed over that one, that would be, a, that would be a really nice, a really nice achievement. So you're, you're quite familiar with the, the retro pie side of things. Are you a retro oh, yeah. gamer yourself? Uh, well, yeah, except that the problem with retro gaming is it's always, I don't know, maybe you find this, that people start to say, you know, say Xbox 360 is retro gaming. Yeah. I remember the first, <laughs> the first article I saw describing PlayStation, original PlayStation 1 um, gaming as retro gaming. I'm like, yeah, that's not right. <laughs> I can just about, and even I, even I struggle a little bit to, to, to live with the Amiga being a retro platform. Um, but, you know, once you get onto something that's, you know, that's got graphics acceleration hardware in, that's, that's, that's the present day, right? Um, but yeah, do a little bit. And uh, you mentioned the Pi Zero there. That stands out for having been a much smaller form factor um, Pi. It was five pound, I think it was, with the yeah. CPU, forty percent faster than the original Pi One. Um, viewer Chrissy wants to know: Will we see a new Zero follow soon? Perhaps with a, the, the CPU from the Pi Three. I think we'd like to. We'd love to find a way to make a faster zero. I think the challenge we have is we don't obviously have a silicon platform to do it with. Um, one of the things people find attractive about the zero is the form factor. So if we blow up the form factor, then it isn't really a zero anymore. And the problem you have, if you look at any of the chips that are post Raspberry Pi one, um, their memory is discrete memory. So the memory is on the board rather than being stacked on top of the processor. If you look at a, a, a zero, it, it has one fewer chip, but it only really has one large black rectangle on it. And that's our chip with the RAM on top of it. Um, so uh, it's not obvious that you could build a, um, a zero form factor 
on top of a later piece of silicon. Now, if other silicon comes along that we can use, I think we'll definitely try and find a way to do it. Because uh, people love the platform. Um, I guess the, you know, your interim design is, if you don't mind about the form factor, probably 3A plus is the closest you get to a, um, to a Super Zero. I mean, it's $25, so it's um, compared to Zero W, which is $10. Um, it's, uh, it's more than twice as expensive. On the other hand, you get about 14 times as much processing power and you get dual band Wi-Fi um, on it. So I'd love to do it, though, because Zero is still the one I love most probably of all of them because it was such an insane thing to do um and it's kind of insane that we did it and we've made it work we sold two million zeros so two million zeros and so we made well zeros and zero w's mixed and so what we were able to do it's kind of seemed an insane thing and that we were able to do it and that it wasn't just a stunt and i think people thought maybe it was a stunt and particularly when we i'm putting on the front of the magazine for free was a stunt um, but the product itself was never intended to be a stunt, um, and it's been great. It's been nearly five years. It will be five years this November. Yeah, I mean, two million zeros uh, before you smashed all the records with the Pi itself. That would have made it a contender for one of the best-selling British computers in itself with two million sales, yeah. Yeah, it would have been, I reckon, fourth. Yeah. So after <laughs> the CPC, about three million, Spectrum, about five, and then PCW, Amstrad PCW, oh, yeah. which is eight million units. When we, when we, did, um, when we got past the Spectrum, um, uh, we got to this all five and five and a bit million units, and we put out some sort of thing saying, "Hey, we're the best-selling British computer ever." And then the PCW fanboys crawled out the woodwork, and who knew there were PCW fanboys? Um, and, and and slated us for um, for for forgetting about um, about Sir Alan's um, uh, sorry, Lord Sugar, Lord Sugar's um, Lord Sugar's jumped up typewriter. <laughs> Now, the Pi, I'm going to get massacred now for saying that in the comment section. <laughs> Jumped up typewriter. Um, now, the Pi 4 arrived. Yeah, he said it, not me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was very respectful on this. I was very respectful. It was the bald one. <laughs> now, the, the Pi 4 arrived uh, at the end of 2019 with a surprise announcement, bringing with it such things as dual displays and 4K support. Um, I was taken by surprise. I wasn't expecting it. Why the surprise approach? Is your market just so big that you you don't need to tease us anymore? You can just release as um, and when. Well, we, we've never te- the only thing we teased with was Raspberry One. Um, the problem we have the problem you have is that once you're shipping volume, you can't. Suppose I told you there's going to be a Raspberry Pi Five next month. Um, be an amazing achievement in the current environment. Um, then people would stop buying Raspberry Pi Fours, right? And, you know, the, the, it is important not to, and it wouldn't matter if I told you it was next month, but suppose I told you it was next year. Uh, I mean, the Osborne effect looms over everyone. The, the risks inherent in, in talking up a future platform, particularly if your future platform is then late, which, you know, all electronic products end up being late. Right? So you've got to be kind of careful about that. So what we try and do is we try and make sure that we always, and that means there will always be a person, but you kind of whenever you tell people about something, there will always be the person who bought it the day before. Um, and, and that sucks. Um, and the, but, but what we've always said is, you know, our products are intended to be good value on the day you bought, you know, and just because something came along a little later, that doesn't mean that it wasn't still a good value product and you, and you shouldn't still feel happy to have it. So, um, you know, on the day we launched Raspberry Pi 4, Raspberry Pi 3 Plus was still an amazing product for the moment. Um, and, 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 yeah, we try and always have that be, one way or another, we try and have that be true. Hmm. And I know it's very early days, but looking ahead to the next buy, um, what would you like to see in it? Um, for example, do you think do you think we'd ever see an FPGA chip to complement the ARM CPU? For example, if they ever get cheap enough to add in there, or would that overcomplicate the device and, it, and its goal? Um, 
I, I think you can you can tell almost everything you need to know about Raspberry Pi's engineering approach from the fact there isn't an ADC on the board. There is an analog to digital converter on the board, despite the fact it would be really very useful, and they're not that expensive. Um, the reason it's not on the board is because it wouldn't be useful to enough people. Um, it wouldn't be any. So if we have a if we have a, something that costs twenty cents and it would be useful for ten percent of our users, then we treat it as a two dollar component. We divide through by the fraction of people. You know, informally, we divide through by the, by the fraction of people who will find it useful. Um, the only new feature that ever made it onto a Raspberry Pi, rather than just more ignoring more memory, more processing power, the only new feature that ever made it onto a Raspberry Pi was wireless. Right. Uh, and that was because that's that is quite an expensive component, um, but it made it on there because we knew that people would um, uh, that enough people would use it to justify it. So I suspect an FPGA, even if it were to become a you know an ADC, even if it would become a twenty cent device, um, I think we would always struggle to find at least in the thirty five dollar product, we'd struggle to find room for it against other competing priorities. Um, but on the other hand, accessories are great, right? Um, and the lovely thing about Raspberry Pi, when you look back to us being a community and not having to do everything ourselves, um, there's a vast community of accessories around the Raspberry Pi. So pretty much everything, including FPGAs, um, that you might want is available as an accessory. And the nice thing about the accessory model is um, you only pay for it if you need it. We don't tax people who don't need it um, uh, to, to, to provide it to the people who do. And it does mean there's perhaps it's a little more, for the people who need it, it's more a little more expensive. Um, but you know, it's 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 worth it in the end. Wonderful. I do have some viewers' questions for you, but just before we we bash through them, just just to reflect on the whole of the success of the project, has the Raspberry Pi accomplished what you set out to do? Um, well, it has narrowly, in the sense that <laughs> we had um, six hundred applicants for computer science to Cambridge in 1999. We had 200 applicants in 2008, and we had nearly 1,500 applicants last year. Uh, and if you talk to them, like anecdotal, the plural, the plural, the plural of anecdotes is, is not data. But if you anecdotally, when you talk to these young people, and you say, how did you get involved in computing? Lots of them say Raspberry Pi. Actually, often Raspberry Pi and robotics more than Raspberry Pi and software. Um, so that's a so that's a thing. So narrowly, I think we did. Um, I think what's became what became apparent very quickly because we actually got to the, we got back to parity really quite quickly actually on that metric. Um, what became apparent very quickly though is that um, you um, the 1980s actually sucked as a as a time to study computing. Uh, we didn't teach it well in schools. Uh, we were reliant on self on self education. Most of the people looked like me. Um, you know, most of you see it's all, you know, nice, nice, nice middle class boys. Um, and, um, you know, that's, that's fine and everything. There's nothing wrong with nice middle class boys, but the, um, but if you look at the, you know, the technology industry today in the UK has a demographic problem, right? It doesn't look a lot like society, right? Um, and the roots of the demographic problems in the computer industry are, uh, in the demographic problems of the 1980s hobbyist computer world. And so kind of, I guess what we've come to realize is that we can do better than the 1980s. They're not getting back to the 1980s was a great baseline. I think we got there. I think we got there several years ago. And then really the question is, what can we do to um, make computing more interesting, make it more accessible to people? What can we do about making computing in schools, uh, making computing in formal environments? Because uh, more appealing. Uh, how can we um, how can we train teachers? We have this fantastic new curriculum the uh, government 
five years or so ago, tore up the ICT curriculum, said it was so uh, of such low quality that it was not even worth assessing. There was a period where there was no curriculum because they felt no curriculum was better than the curriculum we had. Um, and then the curriculum we came back with, the modern computing curriculum in the UK is world class. It's absolutely fantastic. But then for a period of time, there was no investment in training teachers. Um, a couple of years ago, the government did a call, Raspberry Pi, a coalition that Raspberry Pi is part of, was very lucky to uh, to be successful in bidding for some elements of that call. Uh, now we're training teachers at scale in the UK uh, to teach against the new curriculum. So there's lots of, um, yeah, we've, we've accomplished some stuff, um, but there's a lot left to accomplish, and that's just talking about the UK, right? Um, the vast, vast, vast majority of the Raspberry Pi computers are sold outside the UK. Um, I think that makes me feel that we've got some obligation to go try solve this problem in North America, where we now have people, uh, Republic of Ireland, where we have people, Germany, which is an enormous market for us, where we don't have people. Um, and so, you know, there's there's a there's a limitless, you know, the UK is 1% of the world population, right? So it's there's, there's no risk of us running out of problems to solve just yet. Yeah, it's amazing to think you've been around... Ooh, what, eight years since the first Raspberry Pi now, 2012? And it still feels like almost the start of the journey, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, the, start, the start of a mountain. These curves always look like that. Excellent. Well, I've got a list of questions here now in no particular order and all unedited. So if I talk nonsense, I do apologise. I'm just going to read through them. Uh, first one is from Chris Lord. He says, are there any plans for a new compute module anytime soon? This is the industrial module version of the Pi. Yes. there's a Compute, there's a, the compute module 4 is the thing. So there will be, I think we probably said when we launched that we were going to go and do this. Um, later this year, there will be a modularized version of Raspberry Pi 4 that you can integrate into products. Um, I've, seen, I've seen prototypes running it. It's, it's great. I really like it. He also says for portable Pi-based projects, boot time is often an issue. Are there any plans for supporting suspend modes? Oh, suspend modes. Um, um, we talk about it a lot. Um, in previous bits of my career, I've spent a lot of time making suspend mode work. People I know have spent a lot of time making suspend mode work. It's really hard, actually, um, because you're um, making all of your peripherals. It's, it's not RAM and the processor. It's all your peripherals. It's making your peripherals deal happily with the fact that they were running and then time changed. You know, they, they, everything evaporated, and probably their their power got turned off conceivably um, and various bits of their internal state went away. And then you've got to get that all back up and you've got to do that in a way which is seamless from the perspective of higher levels of the operating system stack. It's really hard. I mean, it can consume, um, it can consume the majority, possibly the vast majority of a software team's time um, of a platform software team's time uh, implementing suspend resume. Um, and, it, it, and, and the tail of bugs never goes away because as you're, uh, non-suspend resume driver support moves forwards it interacts with your suspend resume in ways which cause new bugs to appear or latent bugs to crawl out of the system um, so i'm surprisingly as you can tell i'm surprisingly passionate about it. <laughs> um i i think this is something which will happen eventually um i think that as the platforms get more powerful and therefore their um quiescent power becomes higher you know, the idle mode power of, you know, the peak mode power of Raspberry Pi is surprisingly constant. Um, but the idle mode power has come up over time. And people, so it's not just, um, uh, um, it's often batteries, we have portable applications here. You know, what people are trying to do is cons conserve battery while having a quick boot up time. 
Um, and uh, it will get there. I suspect that some future Raspberry Pi or possibly possibly the current Raspberry Pi when we run out of other things to do, so <laughs> conceivably never, um, might grow, suspend, resume. There's nothing architecturally to stop you from doing it, um, but it's, it's, it's formidably difficult from a, uh, from a software engineering perspective. There you go, Chris. I hope that answers your question. Um, Kelvin Shirley asks, why did you decide to do two micro HDMI ports? Why didn't you keep one full-sized and have a second on a header like the DSi? Could have allowed internal HDMI connections, which would give higher resolutions than the DSi can. Does that mean? Ah. Yeah. Um, I think we really wanted to make... Dual, dual display is really important to us, right? Because we're a PC. We see ourselves on PC, particularly Raspberry Pi 4 is the one that you can really use as a PC, and most people won't tell the difference between it and a legacy PC. Um, dual display support is really, a really important facet of the PC experience, and we wanted it to be available to everyone out of the box without having to buy a weird adapter um, ribbon. So, so that drove a, uh, you know, really the only, the only available connector standard was micro HDMI. Um, there was a bit of a, you could see a little bit of an intake of breath, I think, from people when we did it. Um, partly a kind of a perception of fragility in the connector, which hasn't turned out to be. We went through enormous, we went to enormous efforts, actually, to make that connector not fragile. So it has little, um, little lugs that go down into the PCB. Um, and very late in the day, a couple of months before we started, we actually made those lugs 50% longer. Um, so they, they, they sink much further almost through to the other side of the pcb and hold the thing down so it's now it you could peel a you could peel an H, a micro hdmi connector off um uh, uh, off a prototype board and you can't peel it off the production board without you'll destroy something else probably the cable yeah. you, uh, before you, you you do that um so yeah that was that that was the thought and i think it's actually worked out well in the end um i think people people just needed to come to terms with it and also come to terms with the fact that unfortunately it does come with an obligation to buy new cables or at least adapter dongles but we did some work to try to make those a little bit cheaper for people okay uh matt owen asks will the pi ever have native sata support um i don't think so um i think that the i think that your usb3 to sata bridge is pretty much as good as native sata support um Will it ever have NVMe support? Uh, might be might be another question. Um, I could imagine a future. I, I think it's more likely a future pi would grow NVMe than it is that it would grow SATA. Uh, SATA is mostly useful for NVMe is a better if you want to talk to an SSD. NVMe is a better protocol. SATA is still SATA is still good for talking to spinning rust, but um, but the bridges are then are pretty good as well. So. Yeah, and the landscape would have been moved on a lot more by the time another pie comes out. Yeah, it's really hard to do that. That shooting the duck rather yeah. than shooting the duck is always very, very difficult. For and yeah, HDMI is a great one where we launch with HDMI and people are like, hang on, all of our monitors are uh, all our monitors are VGA. <laughs> all, the, all the old monitors that we can get to play with the pie with are VGA. And there was that sort of feeling of like, oh, come on, duck, you know, move forward a little yeah. bit. So Andy asks, has he even got an Amiga or any other retro computers for that matter in your collection? Uh, I have an Amiga 600. I, st I have my Amiga 600. So I have the Amiga 600. Well, I don't actually. I've lent it to the Computer History Museum in Cambridge. And I need to, sorry, the Centre for Computing History in Cambridge. Um, and I need to get it back. Um, but um, yes, I have a, a shop-soiled Amiga 600. When we talk about, you know, talk, talked about Spectrum and ST people and BBC Amiga people, often those were price point 
those are price point things, what you can afford. So um, the the um, Amiga was always solidly 100 pounds more than an ST. Um, I was a BBC Amiga guy on a on a Spectrum ST budget. So I got a very old, broken second-hand BBC Micro, and I found in a corner in Lewis's in um, Leeds just after Christmas of 1992 a, uh, an Amiga 600. I think it was after they'd announced the 1200, so it was really an obsolete product. Um, and I found it in a corner covered in dust, and it was 200 pounds. Um, and I ran home and got 200 pounds for my for my. my Piggy bank, I suppose. Uh, big piggy bank. Uh, <laughs> it was still there. I remember walking in and thinking, it's still be there. Come on, come on, be there. And I walked in and it was still there, covered in dust. And I, and I bought it and took it home and played Silly Putty. Oh, of course, Silly Putty was included with the, the pack, wasn't it? That's it. Yeah. Um, Arn asks, uh, what was the best-selling model of the Pi? Uh, Raspberry Pi 3. Yep. Um, so Raspberry Pi 3 sold, has sold, continues to sell a lot, actually. Last count... 10 million north of bit north of 10 million i think it might be a contender actually for well we've always said like the whole platform has has outsold the c64 um pi 3 alone actually is knocking on the door of people can say that's unfair because you should roll up the c65 and the c128 and stuff um we we're we're actually i think pi 3 is knocking on the door of of getting there on its own uh, and probably is still because we have a lot of industrial customers for Pi Three, still continuing to sell at sufficient rate that, that we might actually get that one over the twelve million. You know, oh, wow! And how's the curve of the Pi Four looking? The, the initial sales? It's pretty good actually. We're two and a bit million at the moment. Um, what's been interesting to us has been that we're still selling. Like I said, we're still selling a lot of threes and three pluses. Um, uh, we have a lot of industrial. Um, customers and so what we're seeing is those people why would they move to a new platform you know they're happy with what we've got it's enough for them um and so we're still seeing probably um half our volume is um probably half our volume is uh, is, is three and three plus uh, and then a bit of zero and then the rest is pi four so yeah two 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 between two and two and a half million years. So yes, really, really good actually, um, and and kind of trending up now a little bit, trending up as people. Um, I think people got comfortable that the software stack is very stable now. We did a lot of power optimization in the second half of last year. Obviously, we dropped the price of the uh, the two gig product. Originally, we launched when we launched the thirty five. The thirty five dollar product is the one we care really, really care about, right? Uh, and RAM prices were such last year that we had to put one gig of RAM in our thirty five dollar product. What's happened since launch? Ram prices have come down, and so our eighth birthday announcement was: um, you've got a, a you can get a two gig for thirty five. So the combination of um, software software maturity, uh, two gig for thirty five dollars, and we're all stuck indoors. Um, uh, you know, if you're stuck indoors, it's a great toy to play with. Um, that's that's kind of that has had a, a over the particularly you can see it in the last couple of weeks. I mean, you can see the you can see the stuck indoors factor in the last couple of weeks. Really, really. yeah. All those people who are supposed to be working from home, tinkering That's with right. their Raspberry Pis. <laughs> uh, last few questions now. Vincent asks, how do you feel about having helped transform the homebrew electronics hobby? I, for one, use, use it to control my telescope, but the possibilities are endless. I wish I had it back in, in my Amiga days. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, it's weird, right, because I'm a software engineer. The, the, the thing has GPIO pins. It has GPIO pins on it because Pete insisted on putting them on there. I was like, I thought people were going to write graphics demos on this on this on this platform, right? So, so it's it's a, it's an accidental it's an accidental thing, and of course, given that we were inspired by Arduino, it is something we should have appreciated was going to happen. 
Uh, but no, it's good. It's good. And a lot of the cool projects and a lot of the, lot of the, um, a lot of the cool things that kids do with it are physical projects. So like I say, when, when you talk to university applicants about what got you involved in computing, it's actually relatively seldom that they've got involved in it through pure software engineering. A lot of them have got involved in it through using a Raspberry Pi or an Arduino or something else to make a thing happen in the real world. And then the last two questions are from Kai Robinson, who I know is a, a techie guy, so get as technical as you like, even. He says, will we ever see a version of Raspbian that can leverage the full 64-bit power of the ARM 8 cores in the Raspberry Pi 2 and up? Yes, um, but of course it won't be Raspbian because it'll be Debian. Because Raspbian is just a word. This is a whole thing where, like, Raspbian is just a word for Debian built in a particular way. Um, so it will be Debian as RBA Debian, ARCH64, ARCH64 Debian. Um, that will be a thing, um, uh, you know, uh, relatively soon um, as an option for people. Yeah, right now, there are a bunch of options. You know, people can run Ubuntu if they want 64 bit support. Um, but it'll be good to bring that to our, our first party OS. Fantastic. And he also says, uh, how does he respond to critics like Richard Stallman who complain that the Pi isn't properly open due to the fact that the Broadcom binary blob exists as entirely closed source code? Um, I I talk to RMS on a fairly regular basis about this. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I think I owe him an email at the moment. Um, the, um, look, I mean, we whittle down the size of that blob with every passing year, right? You know, this is not a blob that's there because we want it to be there. It's there for various technical architectural reasons of, of the design. Um, the big change with Raspberry Pi 4 is um, uh, um, open graphics, is that we are using the Mazer um, open graphics stack by default. So that's an enormous chunk of blob code that's just gone away. Um, the H.265 HEVCD coder, uh, that's in um, uh, that's in Pi 4 has never had a blob associated with it. It's always been driven directly from the ARM. So we're whittling this down to the point where all that's really left um, uh, in the blob is uh, is video encode um, and uh, camera support. Um, and those are cameras. One way they're both ones really where you need to be quite close to the hardware. You need to have something which is closer to being a a microcontroller, which is kind of what the blob runs on um that's very close and can manipulate the hardware in very fine detail so it's a little bit hard to migrate that stuff onto the arm um i would expect we are i would expect a a, a hypothetical future raspberry pi i don't think there will be many more raspberry pis that have anything in that you would recognize as being a blob there might be a little residual thing that does um clocks and there are some safety things like for example over temperature detection you know you probably don't want your main system processor to be running the control loop that watches the temperature of the chip and turns the clocks down if it gets too fast you probably want um some special thing that does that so there may be a little residual bit of blob in the future but we're going to whittle it down to that and of course you know we don't need to get rid of it you have to remember that by the um free software foundation standards by, by um, rms's standards you don't need to eliminate it in order to win right you need to make it there so he has this notion of a of software which is equivalent to a circuit so you would need to bake it we could do it today if we just took the blob put it in our the flash the little onboard flash that's on the on the board and then remove the right protect link, you know, flip the right protect link on the uh, on the ROM so you couldn't change it. Um, you'd be there today um, by RMS rules. Um, so uh, we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. But we don't do it because we're bad people. We do it because we want to offer features to people, and there's no and often there's no other way to do it. 
Fantastic. Well, even uh, thank you so much for your time today. I know it's been a, a long chat, but I think people will appreciate the, the longer format being stuck indoors uh, and your your answers. So <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. Uh, thank you for what you do. I love what you do. I'm still on the Pi 3, but you've swung it for me by telling me I, I can literally use it as a, a desktop computer now because right. I did that as with most people. That's the first thing I tried when I got a Pi. Can I can I web browse with this thing? And of course, yeah. it was a little bit sluggish for that application. So uh, I'm going to go and order a, a four now to play with. Good news, I made a, I made a sale. Yes, so that, <laughs> this is not a scalable way of selling Raspberry Pi. <laughs> Send me your referral link. <laughs> <laughs> Even thank you very much for your time, sir. Thank you very Take much. Care.